The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 57 I don't know what you're asking me. I thought I had more rights than what the police officers were doing to me. I thought it was against the law to try to coerce and stuff like that. That's why I was trying to get out of the room. That's why I was kicking the door. Testimony of Donald Bull This is the first murder investigation we have been involved with, so I really, I don't know what you're asking. Testimony of Marty Boughton when asked why he had not read Donald Bull his Miranda rights. Dean Stone, did you tape record your meeting with Mr. Bull? David Ayers, no. Stone, why not? Ayers, saw no reason to. Stone, anything to hide? Ayers, no. Your General Star, September 15, 1995. Interrogation forced, accused killer testifies. Defendant in slain says he was tricked into meeting with Canton police. Lewistown. A prisoner charged with killing a Canton mother and daughter claimed Thursday that two police officers interrogated him against his will, keeping him in a locked room in Fulton County Jail while he repeatedly kicked on the door trying to alert a guard. Donald R. Bull, charged in the January 1993 slayings of Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter Justine, testified Thursday that he was tricked into meeting with two Canton police officers on December 20, 1993, after a jail guard told him his attorney had come to see him. Bull was led down a hallway where he met Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers and Officer Marty Bowden, who asked him to talk with them about the Tompkins slayings. Bull said he told them his attorney had advised him not to, but that he sat down with them in the jail kitchen anyway. Bolton then locked the door behind him, according to Bull. We know you did this, Bull claimed Ayers told him. You plead guilty and we'll get you to a place where they can help you. I started kicking the door and throwing a chair around. Bull said he kicked the door for about a half hour on and off, while the officers questioned him and tried to persuade him to plead guilty. Bull's testimony Thursday was in support of a motion to have his statements to Bolton and Ayers kept out of his upcoming trial on seven counts of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated arson, and two counts of concealment of a homicidal death. Bull's indictment also alleges that he sexually assaulted Donna Tompkins, 30. Ayers and Bolton's account of the December 1993 meeting differed starkly from Bull's. They said they informed Bull about new developments in the Tompkins investigation. Bull had not yet been charged with the slayings, and that he blurted out several statements to them. Ayers said that when he mentioned new DNA evidence to Bull, Bull said that he had had sex with Donna on two occasions. When Ayers said he also obtained jewelry as evidence, Bull said he had a witness that saw him find rings and couches where he worked. 
The jewelry referred to was apparently two rings that the police obtained in the search of the house, both shared with the Canton woman, Rochelle Hillmeyer, at the time of the slayings. Authorities won't say Thursday whether the rings were connected to Donna Tompkins. Both officers denied Bull's story of kicking the door, saying that the kitchen where they talked to him was unlocked during the entire conversation. They acknowledged that they didn't read him his rights, but said the only question they asked during their meeting was why Bull was talking to them, if his lawyers had advised him against it. Defense attorney Dean Stone scolded the officer's assertion that they had not gone to see Bull in hopes that he would say something incriminating. Also argued Thursday was Stone's motion to keep the rings police found at the Hillmeyer residence out of evidence, along with the key they also obtained. Stone argued that Hillmeyer, who gave police permission to search the home, didn't have the right to authorize his search of Bull's possessions, particularly the closed cardboard box where the rings and key were found. Judge William Henderson said he would rule on both motions later. From a September 15, 1995 article in the Daily Ledger headlined, Rules are pending on motion and murder case. It is stated that local police detectives Marty Boten and David Ayers each testified while the other was out of the courtroom that they met with Bull on December 20, 1993 in the kitchen area of the jail. Each said the purpose of the visit was to inform Donald Bull of the progress of the murder investigation. Each also said that they had talked together with Bull earlier at the jail on March 25, 1993. At the previous meeting, Ayers said he advised Bull of his rights and gave him a form and a waiver, which Donnie signed to acknowledge he had been advised and understood his rights and had essentially waived them. Within courthouse files, I discovered People's Exhibit 1 and 2. Exhibit 1 was a standard statement of rights in the waiver form provided to the court for the first of two interviews that day. Exhibit 1 was a standard statement of rights in the waiver form provided to the court for the first of two interviews on March 25th. 1993. It states before we ask you any questions, it is my duty to advise you of your rights. One through four, each initial DB. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in court and other proceedings. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you any questions and to have him present with you during questioning. If you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you, free of any cost to you, before questioning if you wish. Statement of Rights Given by Marty A. Boten, dated March 24, 1993, a full day prior to the interview, which actually took place on the 25th at 9.41 a.m. at the Fulton County Jail. Below, a waiver. I understand what my rights are, and I am willing to answer questions. Signed by the person receiving the rights, Donald R. Bull, and witness, Marty Boten. Exhibit 2 is a customized Canton Police Department statement of constitutional rights and a waiver, typed up by David Ayers, providing each of the four states of rights, with the initials DB beside each. In the waiver below, statement of rights given by Sergeant David L. Ayers to Donald Bull at 4.20 p.m., with the correct date, 3.25.93. Signature of the person receiving the rights, Donald R. Bull. Officer signature, Sergeant David Ayers. Witnessed by Marty Boten. Ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you of the importance of these two opposing dates, March 24th and 25th. March 24th was the day Donnie exercised his right to be provided with a court-appointed attorney. However, he was not provided one until the following day, the same day as the interview at the county jail, the 25th, though not until after the questioning had commenced. Thus, though Donnie had requested a lawyer, 
no lawyer was yet available to provide Donnie with advice, nor be present at the time the officers had arrived with their waiver for Donnie to sign, and for each officer present to witness for one another, despite the conflicting dates. The article goes on to state, Harris said the kitchen door was ajar at the December 20th, 1993 meeting. He said he did not advise Bull of his rights on this occasion. A conscious decision was made not to do so after having discussed Bull's civil rights twice during the March meeting, essentially nine months prior. Ayers said the jailer with the first name of Mark brought Bull to the kitchen area. They talked there because the interview room was occupied. Ayers testified when they met in the kitchen, Bull said, My attorney told me not to talk to you guys. I said, Then why are you talking to us, Donnie? Ayers said that was the only question either officer asked during the session. He had a bull responded that he wanted to know what the officers had to say. Ayers noted bull sat in a chair between the officers, but tried to stay as far away from them as possible. He added bull was not shackled or otherwise physically restrained. At one point, I advised him more evidence was being examined at the Morton Crime Lab, and jewelry was being looked at as well. At the time, he said he had a witness who saw him finding rings and couches, Ayers said. Ayers continued he also told Bull about DNA testing, and then Bull interrupted to say he had engaged in sexual relations twice with Donna Tompkins, including on one occasion in October of 1992. After I gave my account, he just smiled and told me to prove it, Ayers said. During cross-examination, Ayers said Bull never stated he wanted an attorney, or that the interview be stopped, or to return to his cell. He said the kitchen door was not locked. He added Bull was not the focus of the investigation, since others were being talked about. Bull was not under a greater suspicion in December than in March, said Ayers. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may, Bull was under no greater suspicion in December than he was in March, after nine months of intense scrutiny concerning the double homicide. And Sergeant Ayers is suggesting, or might I say rather admitting, that nothing in that period of time had been uncovered that had increased their interest in Donnie as a suspect? Nine long months of an investigation conducted by a multi-agency task force? Also, I might add, Bull was not the focus of the investigation, since others were being talked about. Ladies and gentlemen, if you go back and refollow the timeline from the day that Donna and Justine's charred remains were found, the criminal investigation was underway. And come March, when the investigators essentially appeared to abandon all other suspects in favor of Donnie, primarily other men, some married, who had been involved romantically with Donna Tompkins. That would have indeed been the month of March, to be more exact, right around March 24th and 25th. I submit to you, might Sergeant Ayers have actually been speaking the truth when he testified that their interest in Donnie had not intensified over those nine months, essentially because their sights had already been fully set on Donnie Bull by the time the December 20th meeting with officers Bowden and Ayers took place down at the Fulton County Jail? But nonetheless, folks, would you be inclined to believe that the testimony made under oath by the lead detective on this case, that the investigation was not about Donnie during their visit, a visit in fact which had been directed to take place by State's Attorney Ed Danner? But about others, others being spoken of, was this statement true before God? Continuing on, the article states Bull had a different version. 
He said Mark the jailer told him his attorney wanted to see him, but he was instead met by police. Police, I remind you, who had been sent to the jail to speak with Donnie by Prosecutor Ed Danner. I told them my attorney told me if I talked to them again, he'd break my arm, he said. He added that the officers were persistent and said, come on in and talk to us, Donnie. Real friendly, he said. He said he told them he was not going to talk to them. The jailer locked a door behind me, a big steel door. He locked it with a skeleton key, Bull said. He added that he was offered some coffee. He said the police told him, you know you did this. We'll get you to a place where they can help you, such as a psychiatric ward in a prison. I kicked the door. I was supposed to go to the Department of Corrections the next day. That's why they wanted to talk to me. They wanted me to sign a plea bargain, he said, adding that he was not informed of his rights. They told me they could give me a plea deal if I pleaded guilty, he said. Bull said he felt locked in and wanted to end the interview. He said he began to feel irate towards Bowden, who was writing some notes in a black folder. During cross-examination, Danner asked him if he knew his rights. I thought, I thought I had more rights than what the police officers were doing to me. That's why I kicked the door, he responded. I told him I didn't want to talk to them. I knocked the chair over and kicked the door for about a half hour on and off. I was yelling at Mark the whole time, he said, and then Ayers closed the window so others could not see in. Bull said the officers asked him why I killed them, why I killed a little girl. Was I on drugs? I don't remember all the questions, he said. He continued that he had kept kicking the door and didn't answer their questions. I really didn't pay much attention to them, he said. Ayers and Bowden were out of the room during his testimony. They then recalled individually to Danner when they testified. When asked, Ayers said to his recollection, Bull never kicked the door or knocked a chair over. He said Bull may have asked to leave the room at the conclusion of the interview. Bowden was then asked if Bull reacted physically. Yes, he took his chair and pushed it back toward the door. He didn't knock over the chair or kick the door, he answered. Danner said Bull's statements were made voluntarily and he was not restrained beyond the degree of any other inmate in custody. Danner said the state had the burden of proof in this matter, but he assessed that the credible testimony given was on the side of the state. Stone countered the interview was designed to elicit statements. He noted the session lasted an hour, and homicide detectives were trained to obtain information. He maintained the meeting could not have simply been for the purpose of updating Bull on the investigation. He said that the Supreme Court has ruled location, mood, the intention of police, focus of the investigation, and virtually all other aspects of police interviews must be considered with respect to the admissibility of evidence obtained during the interrogation of persons in custody. They didn't let it ride and continued to talk to him, against his desires and against his own counsel's advice, Stone said. They were looking for something to take back to the state's attorney to make a deal, to get whatever they could to fry his client. He noted Ayers had talked with Danner and others the day before the December interview. Failure to advise Bull of his rights that day violated his Fifth Amendment rights, and failure to provide him the right to counsel, as his attorney had advised, violated his Sixth Amendment rights, Stone said. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot help but contemplate if the Supreme Court had ruled mood and intention of police, along with the focus of the investigation and virtually all other aspects of police interviews, must be considered with respect to admissibility of evidence obtained during the interrogation of persons in custody, should not the same be considered for the investigation as a whole, possibly even the trial, before a jury of peers? What was in the kitchen that day? What was in those previous nine months? What is it now? in the prosecutor's office, and that which spills over into the stand. 
that which might contaminate the jury, or might already have, might it be mood? And what was the mood of the community? Do you recall that survey conducted at the Canton Kmart and the like, in which statements of locals have been recorded regarding the bull case? Statements such as, Don't like the man, never have. Used to work with Donna. Don't like that man. I hope you're not related to Bull. They've got a good case on him. Don't know if he's guilty, but they ought to hang him anyway. Total sympathy for the Tompkins. Donna was very well liked, and this could make a big difference in the jury selection. One thing these statements all have in common is that they all have a mood, a reasonably consistent mood. And what of intention and location? Though yes, Judge Henderson had granted the motion to move the trial out of Fulton County, the intention of the investigators, however, and that of the prosecution's office, shall stay the same. That mood shall remain the same. And as the potential for that mood to leach onto that case, it shall follow it into whatever nearby county it may land. Donnie should not only lose against the admissibility of mood, but if mood shall indeed infiltrate the halls of the court, he should also lose out on the likes of another type of familiarity. Quite yet, another kind of mood, for example. Many people don't remember him like I do. A statement made on that day at Canton Kmart. He was a good friend before this happened, and I still have my doubts he did it. What happens when Donnie is presented before a jury with a mood honed by the prosecution with intention and focus? And I cannot help but ask, ladies and gentlemen, as I am resolute to remind not only myself, but all of you that the intention and focus of this podcast is not to forget, as the Peoria Journal Star article entitled Crime and Justice in Canton had asked us all not to, not to forget who the actual victims are, this is the question I feel compelled to ask. Another burden for me to stack upon your shoulders, if I may. If those nine months from March to December had, in fact, been a consistent attempt to railroad Donnie Bull, would not all of this effort to scapegoat the easiest target indeed, in the end, potentially upon his execution, would not this deed in the name of justice, in reality, forsaken Donna and Justine, and a killer who still walks the streets? Shall not this act, in the name of remembering the victims, actually manifest an outcome of victimizing mother and daughter yet again? This, ladies and gentlemen, is the concern of this podcast, the intention, the focus, and thus the mood. Because that's the equation. Intention plus focus equates mood. And before we continue on, I feel I should read yet another statement. You know, I'm not really sure if Bull is John or the man from the bank. December 19, 1995, Peoria Journal Star. Murder suspect statements won't be used in trial. Canton man's rights were violated by police in questioning judge rules. Lewistown. Statements made to police by a Canton man accused of murdering a woman and her child may not be used in his upcoming trial. Henderson found that statements made by Bull to Canton police about the January 13, 1993 slayings were improperly obtained. Those statements were gathered in violation of Mr. Bull's Miranda rights, Henderson said. Bull has maintained the statements obtained by Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers and Officer Marty Boten in the Fulton County Jail were forced from him. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said the inadmissible statements are not crucial to his case against Bull. We didn't lose a single thing with that ruling today, Danner said. There's not a single thing in that interview that we cannot duplicate from another source. Henderson also said during Monday's hearing that Bull's jury trial will be held in Carthage, the county seat of Hancock, 
about 70 miles west of Lewistown, in Naughton, Fulton County, where the alleged crimes had occurred. Defense attorneys Dean Stone and Alyssa McMillan argued during an earlier hearing that pre-trial publicity had destroyed Bull's chance of getting a fair trial in Fulton County. Defense attorneys also filed a motion requesting that Henderson declare the death penalty an invalid sentencing option should Bull be found guilty. The attorneys argued that the death penalty statute is too vague and therefore unconstitutional. The defense also asked that jurors be sequestered during the trial and that prospective jurors be interviewed individually rather than in a panel form. Again, let's take a step back in time to March 1993. On the 29th of that month, just four days after the dual interviews conducted by Sergeant Ayers and Detective Bowden with Donnie down at the Fulton County Jail, Sergeant Ayers, along with Special Investigative Agent for the Illinois State Police, Kenneth Kedzer, went to the residence of Donnie's girlfriend at the time, Rochelle Hillmeyer, and asked for permission to conduct a search of her home. Now, before we dig into the matter, it is relevant to mention one thing. Do you recall, ladies and gentlemen, when on the stand, Sergeant Ayers testified that Donnie was not considered any more or less a suspect than any other man in Donna's life? If so, do you find it peculiar the fact that investigators had never conducted a search of any of the other suspects' homes? A question worth asking, no doubt. She agreed to let us search, Ayers told the Journal Star. She stated she had access to everything in every room of the residence. He added that he did not feel a search warrant was necessary. Referring to the Black Bailey's Irish Cream cardboard box Donnie kept in his bedroom, one he used as a catch-all per se, Ayers continued, Kedzer located the small liquor box, which was located next to a dresser in the corner, Ayers said. We were looking for any items of evidentiary value. Kedzer, who was not present in the courtroom during Ayers' testimony on the matter, told the judge that he saw the box next to the dresser, opened it, poured out the contents, and then took possession of the rings and a key he found within. However, Donnie had testified that within the two-story home on South 2nd Avenue in Canton, where he lived with Rochelle and her three daughters, and where he had kept some possessions stored in the basement, I kept a 12-foot, excuse me, asked the judge, and then Donnie corrected himself, saying he kept a 12-inch collection box that he used as a piggy bank in the bottom drawer of a dresser in the bedroom with his jeans, not next to the dresser on the floor, below a TV, and beside a tall pile of laundry where Agent Kedzer said he had discovered it. Donnie also stated that no one was permitted to open that box, not even Rochelle, as it was his personal property. He said when asked that the lid snapped tightly shut. He said he used it to collect coins, as he said he enjoyed looking closely at old coins. However, Kedzer swore on the stand that the box did not, in fact, snap shut, and that he found the box with the lid open, as he, Sergeant Ayers, and Rochelle entered the room. Kedzer then took the box which he said he found in the corner and said since it was half full of pennies, he dumped it out on the bed. He said upon the pile of pennies were a few silver coins, a key, a gold ring with a black setting, and another with a clear stone. And that when asked, Rochelle said yes, she had seen the rings before. As they tagged the items they felt to be evidentiary, they did not take the box and left it on a chair. But then there was some discrepancy in the court that day between Ayers and Bowden as to whether or not the box was found open. As Ayers testified, with Bowden outside of the courtroom, that the agent had opened it. Stone argued such a search was illegal in light of the U.S. Constitution decision. The homeowner lacks the power to allow the search of a closed container for a house guest, he said. He added his client should be able to expect privacy for such possessions. 
but Danner countered. Lawful consent was given by a third party of a common residence. He added the Supreme Court decision did not refer to cardboard boxes or plastic buckets, but the more secure and personal containers such as a valise or a suitcase. Note to listener, never expect a cardboard box to be considered a secure and personal container in which your possessions or personal belongings are safe against unlawful search and seizure. Defendant's Exhibit Number 1 Canton Police Department Search Waiver to Personal Search I, Rochelle A. Hillmeyer, have been informed by Sergeant David L. Ayers and Ken Ketzer who made proper identification as authorized law enforcement officers of the Canton Police Department and Illinois State Police of my constitutional right not to have a search made of my premises, of my constitutional right not to have a search made of the premises and property owned by me or under care, custody and control without a search warrant. Knowing of my lawful right to refuse to consent to such a search, I willfully give my permission to the above named officers to conduct a complete search of the premises and property including all buildings and vehicles, both inside and outside of the property located at 367 South First Avenue. The above mentioned officers further have my permission to take from my premises and my property any letters, papers, materials, or any other property or things that they desire as evidence for criminal prosecution in the case under investigation. This written permission to search without a search warrant is given to me to the above officers voluntarily and without any threats or promises of any kind. At 10.57 a.m. on this 29th day of March 1993 at 367 South 1st, signed Rochelle A. Hillmeyer, Witness Kenneth Kedzer, Witness David Ayers. Defendant's Exhibit 2, Illinois State Police, Evidence, Inventory, and Receipt. Itemized list of evidence. Gold ring with clear stone. Gold ring with black setting. Key. Location evidence found. Box next to dresser in southwest bedroom. Signed by the officers and Rochelle, to whom a copy of the receipt was provided. Now comes the defendant, Donald R. Bull, by and through his attorney, Dean A. Stone, who moves his court to suppress certain evidence in this case, and in support, therefore, states as follows. On March 29, 1993, certain items were seized by Illinois State Police, consisting of a gold ring with a clear stone, a gold ring with a black setting, and a key. While the defendant had a reasonable expectation of privacy and had a possessory interest in the item seized, that at the time of the unlawful search and seizure, the defendant was not violating any laws and so on. Basically, Stone claims that since there was no extringent circumstances and since the items were not in plain view, a search conducted without probable cause and without Donnie's consent was illegal and violated his constitutional right protecting him against unreasonable search and seizure a liberty that had not been deprived any other of the numerous suspects in this case. Suspects whom, according to Sergeant Ayers under oath on the stand, were considered as equally suspect of the double homicide as was Donald R. Bull. State's Attorney Ed Danner's response to the motion to suppress evidence of rings and key. They were lawfully recovered as they were provided to the officers by a common occupant at the residence.
Again, ladies and gentlemen, take note. A roommate, according to Ed Danner, has full rights to allow search and seizure of your space and possessions, even when within a closed container, especially be it that container be cardboard. On October 26, 1995, Judge Henderson, in a letter to Mr. Danner and Mr. Dean Stone, says, Gentlemen, after reviewing the evidence presented, your argument and authority, it is my decision to deny the motion to suppress evidence, rings and key, of the defendant, Donald R. Bull. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, the brief wave the defense had caught and their interest had broken. As soon as the tide had come in, it had withdrawn back into the sea of uncertainty in the face of an impending death penalty trial. Lastly, ladies and gentlemen, it is important to note, since word of the key found in the Bailey's box is almost entirely void and never mentioned again in this case, except briefly and obscurely during prosecution closing arguments, it is a fact the key found did not fit in the door of Donna Tompkins' apartment. Despite that off-the-cough comment gathered from Canton Kmart. Donna and her three-year-old were killed, and the house was set on fire to destroy the evidence, and I believe Donnie had access. Ladies and gentlemen, had the damage already been done? Now let's take a brief step back and a bit to the side. Chicago Tribune, November 16th, 1994. DNA testing on firing line in murder trial. When a headless, handless body was found in Barrington nearly two years ago, it took authorities nearly a month to identify it. Without fingerprints or dental records, they turned to sophisticated DNA testing to identify the body as that of 22-year-old Dean Fawcett of LaGrange Park. They matched blood from Fawcett's parents, Mary Kay and Charles, with blood and bone marrow from the body. But the DNA profiling techniques used by the Illinois State Police to identify Fawcett came under challenge Tuesday by defense lawyers for Robert Ferrarsi in pretrial hearing before Cook County Circuit Judge Sam Amarant in the Rolling Meadows Courthouse. Defense attorneys and prosecutors extensively questioned the forensic scientist who produced a statistical model establishing Fawcett's identity. Under questioning by state's attorney James McKay, David Metzger, the DNA research coordinator for the Illinois State Police, testified that only 1 in 47 million randomly selected couples could produce a child with Fawcett's genetic makeup. In an elaborate explanation of DNA profiling, Metzger insisted that the methods used are widely accepted in nearly every state police and FBI forensic laboratory throughout the country. But Metzger admitted, under cross-examination by Assistant Public Defender Vito Colosci, that there are about a dozen forensic scientists in the country who take issue with the mythology used in such DNA profiling. Still, Metzger defended the mythology and concluded that the chances were slim that anyone other than Fawcett's parents could have produced the person that Farsi, 25, and Madrowski, 19, are accused of killing in December of 1992. The defense attorneys have asked to exclude from evidence the DNA profile of Fawcett produced by Metzger. If the judge were to grant their motion, could be a blow to prosecutors. The defense would likely file a motion to dismiss the case on the grounds that the defendants could not possibly be charged with the crime against someone who cannot positively be identified. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I discovered in the Fulton County court files notes taken on a hardware store notepad by the hand of David Metzger. While working on the case for the state during the double homicide investigation of Donna and Justine Tompkins was a detailed account by Mr. Metzger providing his testing procedure and results, which at the very bottom concluded a final figure that 96,000 sperm cells had been recovered from Donna's vaginal swab, all there on a sheet of paper from a hardware store. Also included was a letter to Mr. Danner, summarizing that DNA from a vaginal swab could have originated from Donald Bull. The DNA profile from the vaginal swab, which matched that of Donald Bull, would be expected to occur in about 1 in 3.8 billion Caucasians and about 1 in 10.4 billion Blacks. Therefore, it is extremely unlikely that the DNA in the vaginal swab originated from anyone other than Donald Bull. Along with further conclusions, that DNA recovered from the vaginal swab did not originate from Rod Franciscovich, Terry Haynes, John Tompkins, or David Haynes. It is important to note, ladies and gentlemen, that Mr. Metzger was also the DNA specialist for Donnie Bull's 1993 trial. But let's stay focused on 1996. In January of that year, during Donnie's pretrial, Donnie's defense lawyer, Dean Stone, filed a motion for additional discovery, asking the judge to allow the defense the following. Results from the tests conducted by the state's experts on Rod, Terry, John, and David. Stone also stated that in order for the defense to properly review the autopsy record, it was essential that the defendant be provided with copies of the microscopic slides on the tissues that were prepared during the course of the autopsy. Also, that all information be provided on the proficiency exams for the state's experts and labs on all DNA testing completed, and the results of those proficiency tests for all those experts and labs since the date initial proficiency tests were commenced. Lastly, the defense requires the CV, personal file, and any disciplinary proceedings and actions regarding Mr. David A. Metzger, Bureau of Forensic Sciences, Illinois State Police Forensic Science Laboratory. In March of 96, State's Attorney Ed Danner filed a motion asking that the court prevent the defense from mentioning, utilizing, or using in any manner, eliciting, or referring to any disciplinary proceedings involving state's witness David Metzger, stating that the defense is attempting to discredit the witness during cross-examination by mentioning facts and circumstances of Mr. Metzger's employment disciplinary matters. In other words, past bad acts. However, that there is no showing of any connection between any past conduct of the witness and his competence and ability as a forensic DNA scientist. Wherefore, it states, it is respectfully requested that the defense be prevented from eliciting any information concerning any disciplinary matter or proceeding of David A. Metzger during the course of the trial, signed Ed Danner. A few days later, a motion to the response. Disciplinary records of David Metzger show that he was charged with five administrative charges by the Illinois State Police consisting of some of the following. 1. Theft. 2. Official misconduct. 3 creating false surplus inventory forms, and the taking in legal and authorized possession of an Olympus Van Ox microscope. The defense believes that Mr. Mesker's credibility and bias for testifying are at issue in the case, and such impeachment of his credibility and bias are proper areas of cross-examination, and that the state is incorrect in its assessment that a witness may not be impeached regarding where it can be shown that this testimony might be induced by interest, bias, or motive to testify falsely and that Mr. Mesker essentially has a motive to testify falsely or to establish his testimony to please his employees 
since he has just been suspended without pay on a disciplinary action for which criminal charges could have been filed. Signed, Alyssa A. McMillan. Exhibit A. Settlement Agreement The Illinois State Police has just caused to institute discharge proceedings against this employee, David A. Metzger, with respect to an incident occurring on or about January 7, 1995, involving a state-owned microscope. In the interest of judicial economy, to recognize the many and diverse factors, and to best serve the needs of both parties, the Illinois State Police and David A. Metzger enter in the pre-disciplinary settlement agreement. The parties agree as follows. 1. The employee will serve a suspension of 100 counter days without pay to begin May 22, 1995 and continue through August 29, 1995. The employee will voluntarily perform 120 hours of community service as directed and monitored by the Illinois State Police. 3. The employee will voluntarily forfeit 75 hours of accrued vacation time without use of benefit of such hours. 4. Except as may be required by law or as is necessary to implement this agreement, the employee will not disclose the terms to any person or entity other than to his spouse, nor shall he disseminate the terms of this settlement to any person or entity. 5. The employee will voluntarily cooperate with any administrative procedure necessary to effectuate the terms of this agreement. 6. The parties expressly agree the settlement of this matter shall be without prejudice and that this settlement shall not constitute precedent as to the issues compromising this matter or as any other matter whatsoever. 7. If the employee complies with the terms of this agreement, the Illinois State Police will not institute discharge proceedings against the employee with respect to this matter. If the employee fails to comply with the terms of this agreement, the Illinois State Police may seek additional discipline up to and including discharge. 8. The employee will not file a grievance or otherwise challenge the terms of this agreement in any other form at any time. 9. The employee releases forever and discharges the Illinois State Police and the State of Illinois and all agents, employees, and assigns from any claim or any kind whatsoever arising out of the terms of this settlement and or circumstance which gave rise to the discipline. Signed, David A. Metzger. Okay, now let's step back to number seven. If the employee complies with the terms of this agreement, the Illinois State Police will not institute discharge proceedings against the employee with respect to this matter. David A. Metzger was a hair shy of being fired from the Illinois State Police for theft, misconduct, and falsifying inventory reports. And the defense's concern is that Mr. Metzger may be willing to testify in a manner that appeases his employers. Moving along. DNA typing has long been held up as an exception to the rule, an infallible technique rooted in unassailable science. The forensic technique studied and validated by researchers worldwide was pioneered by a British geneticist named Alec Jeffries who stumbled onto it in the autumn of 1984. It was said that Dr. Alec Jeffries had done a disservice to crime writers all over the world, former detective and author Joseph Wambaugh. DNA is such a powerful propellant in the courtroom, researchers found, that sexual assault cases involving DNA evidence 
were twice as likely to reach trial and 30 times as likely to result in guilty verdict. Homicide cases were 14 times as likely to reach trial and 23 times as likely to end in a guilty verdict. DNA analysis has risen above all other forensic techniques because no other forensic method has been rigorously shown able to consistently and with a high degree of certainty demonstrate a connection between evidence and a specific individual or source. But the problem is that science is only as reliable as the manner in which we use it. Another problem with DNA profiling is that there is so little skepticism. Just because we're moving forward doesn't mean we are progressing perfectly. Mistakes are still being made. But again, DNA is a science. When things go wrong, no one can blame DNA. You can only blame the people who are using it. DNA evidence can easily be misunderstood by a jury. If unchallenged, DNA evidence can be significantly persuasive as it appears to offer a degree of certainty that is often missing from a criminal trial. It also has the cachet of being the hot topic on CSI shows. But DNA's apparent certainty can be deceptive. It can be misused and misapplied, and DNA cannot itself solve a crime. Nonetheless, investigators and juries alike want evidence and results that make their already difficult jobs easier, and also to take some of that burden off of their shoulders. No wonder they would love some expert like David Metzger to ease the burden of judgment by saying, This is the answer. This is the answer. If only it were that easy. There is still a lot we do not know about DNA. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know we don't know. Donald Rumsfeld. And as a society, as investigators, prosecutors, defenders, judges, and juries, we need to be acutely conscious of the limitations of DNA evidence. The question is not, whose DNA is it? But, how did the DNA get there? According to Donnie Bull, through consensual sex with Donna Tompkins. According to Ed Danner, sexual assault. A conundrum. A question DNA, as complex as it may be, shall never know the answer to. After all, DNA is just another piece of physical evidence. And like all evidence, DNA can be used, misused, and abused. Just as the ascent of man was secured through scientific creativity, no physical event can ever ultimately be described with absolute certainty. And in the words of Albert Einstein, I believe in institutions and inspirations, and I sometimes feel that I am right, but I do not know that I am. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. 
Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>